Listening to What a Waste of Time. I'm Jim. Once again, I'm here with Nick. Hello. Uh, and today, I guess we're going to be talking about adaptations of stories into different mediums. That is the premise of this podcast that you told me we were going to do. So yes. I hope it's that. The idea that I came up with two days ago. Yeah. We'll see. All right. So we're going to start the timer for one hour. There we go. Okay. So the reason that I had this idea is because on Friday we watched. Um, Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. And not related to this conversation, we also watched Die Another Day. Oof. oof Just to okay. say, it was a real cavalcade ooh, of high-quality like, cinematic watching on Friday night, wasn't it? Yeah, it wasn't... <laughs> I feel I, I must make clear, we did not choose these films. They chose us. We're, but we did choose not to change the channel <laughs> we were just i have the defense that i was drunk so i don't you know <laughs> i have no, you have no such excuse <laughs> uh, maybe i just say oh i didn't want to fight you uh, yeah. um but anyway so what was interesting about our reaction to sweeney todd is uh or at least for me at least i hadn't seen it since it was in the cinema hmm. um and when it was in the cinema i was but a teenager i hadn't been a film student yet uh i hadn't developed my sort of is it, really that, is, it, is it that old? Yeah, I remember because it was in. I watched it in the cinema in little old Bridgewater town, famous oh, yeah. famous for incest. Um, it really is, and uh, it was with only two screens, uh, and that was the same the same screen that um, leaked during the rain. Uh, so that's so that's so, so it was like two thousand six then, because it must have no been. no later than that. I was I was I was in college, so um, like two thousand seven or eight. Okay. Um, well, it's because I, I was at uni in 2007-8, and I was just like, like, yeah, you are a year younger than me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It, was, yeah it was shortly. Anyway, n- nobody cares. Um, There's no time for that. If you want to know when the film was released, just Google it, okay? Jim will now do an insert of him looking it up. No, I'm not going to look okay, it up. It's enough. not important. Anyway, um, and what was... Um, so, watching it now, after having not seen it in so long, it was sort of interesting how my... Um, reaction to it had changed because i think at the time it's like yeah it's fine yeah. um i like musicals and um back then we didn't know that tim burton was not always a safe bet and that johnny depp was a shit mm. um so watching it this time it was sort of i think the main thing that struck me was how shockingly blandly it was filmed and edited i will agree there's some, there's some bits where um they do some kind of interesting uh, shots with lots of like long tracking stuff every so often, but generally it's a really quite static, very uninteresting film. That you you said something while we were watching it that like you can really tell that this is a play because it's got like three locations, yeah, and you just interact with those locations in a very uninteresting fashion. Um, and the thing that really stuck out to us, which I think is probably going to be the main jumping off point of this conversation is that um, in the singing sequences, <coughs> in the singing sequences, which is when, um, you know, the musicals tend to go a bit crazy, you see your uh, Moulin Rouges, your Chicago's, etc., your your Mrs. Saigon's, um, you have all these things where it goes into a kind of more uh, advanced form of reality. Like, you know, the, the music is not necessarily diegetic to the scene, so you, the style of it and the set pieces and all of the action can become a bit more heightened and like, oh. You know, uh, case in point, if you look at something like the um, He Had It Coming song from Chicago, Mm. where it's like she just got to prison and now here's a sexy prison dance with all (laughs) the prisoners with their colours and, oh, it's amazing. And I'm just like, oh, okay. But that's sort of like, this is sort of stepping on the point that uh, Lindsay Ellis made in her uh, video essay about Phantom of the Opera, Mm. where she talks about why that film is such a hot mess. Um, Because there is this sort of problem when adapting theatre, especially musical theatre, to uh, film, Hmm. which is that, but it's sort of a necessary part of the genre of theatre, is that it's a little abstract. Yes. Because, like, 
and you have to if you're moving spaces or if there's things that you can't literally do on stage you sort of rely on um the audience suspending their disbelief a little bit like not even that it's it's, i would say it's less about suspension of disbelief it's more about there is because this is actually oh this this is actually falling right into my wheelhouse wonderful um as an amateur filmmaker with a drama degree um i am very very interested with the differing approaches of theatrical convention and how they link up with film because even though you think oh it's all performance and it's all storytelling so surely it must be the same not so gentle listeners <laughs> not so indeed it, it, it you, the there are so many different things not only in the construction of it because obviously with film the uh, director or slash editor or whatever or who the filmmaker has absolute control over what the audience sees at any time theater it's all going to be on the stage and you can't tell exactly where the audience is going to be looking so you have a much more uh, wider focus that you have to try and cover. You can, you know, use lighting to do that. You can use, you know, ensemble cast to do that, etc., etc. But it's a very different kind of thing. Additional to that is you have um, what I was, uh, what we were about to get into. I feel, which is that people go into theatre, which even though it is live, there's a much stronger sense of visual signifiers being surrogates for the real thing. Hmm. You, I saw, um, was it, uh, just recently I went to the National Theatre and saw Sondheim's Follies, which was very good, very dark. Sondheim, good, music, good musicals, a lot of very negative opinions about love and people being together. Um, but the way it was set is, it was a big rotating stage, um, and it's set in this old, broken down uh, music hall. And the way that they signified that was they just had this giant brick wall with like a broken gap in the middle with... Um, faded neon sign on one side and on the other side there was like a um, backstage area with like the fire exit and stuff like that and that was like this is a theatre of course it's not it's just a brick wall with some stuff on it but due to the fact that you're in a theatrical performance you're sort of like yeah I know what this is whereas in film if you did that that would be a very abstract film even though it was a very sort of almost naturalistic show that I saw the way it was set did not feel intendedly abstract yeah the moment you if you take a scene that's on stage that uh is supposed to be set somewhere but the way that they signify that is just with a little bit of set dressing or with just a bit of dialogue sometimes um uh, this, the moment you translate that into film you can't do it the same way you have to set it in that place so automatically films become a little bit more realistic than musicals mm. uh, well, or any stage show really but the thing thing about musicals which is the point that Lindsay Ellis made is that um, you expect there is that sort of suspension of disbelief when all of your um, actors start singing mm. um, and when you transpose that to a more realistic space uh, it's harder to suspend your disbelief yeah. so what a lot of modern musicals at least um, do to sort of combat that is to add an element of abs- abstraction as you mentioned, Chicago is a great example of that, where basically all the musical numbers happen in this abstract space. The, the stage in Roxy's yeah. mind. And it uh, flips between this and the real world, where people don't sing and the colours are more muted and uh, it's a real place. Mm. But then the, the, you juxtapose that with the theatre in Roxy's mind. Mm. Um, and that works really well. Uh, and the thing is, this... Yeah, my reaction to Sweeney Todd was not not only was it really blandly filmed, I suddenly saw how it could have been really, really good. Because mm. it could have done a very similar thing. Like, all the songs should have been set in an abstract space. Especially because some of them even are. There's yeah. the song, I don't, I forget the name, um, <laughs> where Johnny Depp uh, sort of, oh, he's just failed to kill um, Alan Rickman and so he basically says oh, I'm going to kill everyone oh the vengeance song yeah um, yes sir you sir close shave sir I will have vengeance I want you bladers yeah. uh, that song um, which isn't an abstract space because he's ro- you see him roaming around the street and then it cuts to back inside the barbershop he's not left mm. um, so there's no need for that space that he's running around in to look real yeah because it isn't yeah and and yet it's all very muted colours. It's shot very sort of banally. Um, I, I wouldn't go that way. It's, it's oh, got well, this kind partic- of like follow camera thing. It kind yeah. of works. I, I think my, my My complaint about banal cinematography I think applies more to the A Little Priest song, which is the one song, I, like, yeah. I think the best song uh, in, in the musical, Your Mileage My Fairy. Oh. Um, 
This, but how do they film this? This they song? just they film it like it's a conversation. Where's well, the? It's in this scene. Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter look out of a window, and then to really change it up, they look out of a different window, and then they walk around a counter, and we just—it's just static. Yeah, and it's, it's and, so... and normally one for like. Like I, in Murder on the Orient Express, uh, Kenneth Branagh's one, like it really sort of bothered me that every shot of the train was sweeping around and panning and going up the mountain and down the mountain and oh, it's Dutch and Dutch the other way. Like I thought that was too much, but in a, in a musical number, you gotta do that sort of thing. Well, the, the the way that one of the things I the thoughts I had, which you can hear actually on um my podcast, heard you saw plug. Motherfucker! Oh, uh, I, I want to say I really wish I was there for that. Co- I, I don't know why Nick has not invited me to be on his podcast. And we'll, we'll... It's not more fun just to deny him. <laughs> it's fun. Um, but but I, I, I do. Of... I do really wish I was there for the Murder on the Orient Express one because uh, I've read the book recently and I just wanted to be like, no, Agatha Christie, like, <laughs> like, sure it's not. It's not her best work, but she does it better than this. It's your sidetrack. Okay. However, but one of the uh, the points I made is the filmmaking in that it felt very like Baz Luhrmann. Now, you look at Baz Luhrmann and you look at Moulin Rouge, mm. and also to a lesser extent, you look at The Great Gatsby. Baz Luhrmann is a person who it, it, it almost like, I would also uh, liken him onto Luc Besson a little in the sense that he's very unafraid to just throw things at the camera, both visually and with the camera. He'll have like these dramatic, crazy panning shots mm. that's like this hyper reality kind of thing. I mean, uh, I, quite recently I watched the. Um, What's it? The well, I think it's not the opening number to Moulin Rouge. The one where it's like they're um they're the first time they go to the club, and it's like it's the Can Can song. Yeah, I think. well, it's it's I think it's called the Can. It's like a fucking fever dream. It's yeah. just like, you're like it, the, oh! first, the first time I watched Moulin Rouge, I couldn't get through it. It made me nauseous. It was only on a second viewing. I was like, oh, I get it. Yeah. I, I think you have to brace yourself for it a bit. It's very visually arresting, <clears throat> and it's really really powerful, and it uses colour really smartly. Mm. Whereas Tim Burton thought, muted, done, cool. I, mean, and that I, was... I mean, I know he's going for this gothic Victorian look, but Sweeney Todd is supposed to be macabre and sort of taking joy in that. Where were my fountains was... of blood? Yeah, you, well, I mean, they did have a lot of blood, but it was all realistic. You wanted, you know, Wednesday and Pugsley on stage in Adam's Family. Yeah, or it's, like your, your tar- or Tokyo Gorpoli, so your Tarantino's uh, or whatever. A heightened reality is yes. what you needed. And... and I mean, that's like we've already said that you know the the problem with adapting a musical to film is that you sort of have to put it in a more realistic reality, which doesn't benefit of a, a musical. Tim Burton made it worse by steering it more realistic. Yeah, he should have he should have just leaned hard into madness. It's a bit surprising. I mean, there's kind of a thing about Tim Burton. I would say is that he's very much a filmmaker who I don't feel has a very st- st- this this might this may sound contradictory. He he has subject matter and tonal elements, and also some visual aesthetic things, like you know his maison scene, if you will, or like you know the, he likes his gothic stuff. He likes his you know sort of muted color palette, but with sort of high contrast black and whites kind of yeah. thing. A lot of deep blues, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I don't think he has that much in the way in the way that he films things. Mm. That's very like I couldn't tell you how Tim Burton constructs no. a shot Whereas, like, like you, a you, scene. Com- you compare it to David Fincher who has this sort of quite distinctive subtle camera work that he that is sort of um, symbolic of his films yeah um, or like Terence Malick or like um, Wes uh, Anderson yeah so what's his Simon Liang with Cinema of Slowness and stuff like that you know you can look at other directors and even Michael Bay you yeah. know, he, oh my god, even Michael Bay. I mean, this is the thing, Michael Bay, I feel, you know, a controversial opinion, I feel like Michael Bay gets a lot of unnecessary stick. Oh, I'm giving, I give him so much stick. You do give him a lot All of the stick. sticks. All are the his. sticks are his, a bundle of sticks. He's like a lumber factory over here. <laughs> um, he, I feel like that he's not, hear me out, <laughs> he's not a bad filmmaker. Mm, I fi- just, let, just me, let me groaning. finish, let me finish. Uh, he's not a bad filmmaker. I feel like the problem is that his style of filmmaking has become synonymous and very culturally dominant within the space of action movie summer blockbuster. Mm. And it's like, he's not the only person that does this whole kind of like shaky cam fight scene stuff. You look at the um, Bourne franchise, like they're very much typified by the fact that they have these very fast cut, very shaky camera. Step it, step it. Yeah, that's true. Kind of and, then, like... and then everyone sort of copied. Then like Quantum of Solace has this opening sequence, which is very is more James Bourne. Yeah, exactly. And it's you know I feel like that he Bay was doing it first, and Bay in some ways 
even though I don't much like it as a style, kind of does it best because he sort of he has this sort of term of you know cinema of excess like he calls it fucking the frame you know mm. because he's a classy chap yeah. i will say i'm not defending him as a person he sounds like an awful sexist kind of racist military obsessed terrible scripts just <laughs> woeful but then writing. also like you're just sort of defending his filmmaking and i'm just going to undermine that by saying once again Lin- well there's Lindsay ellis's series about it you know the, the whole plate yeah we're just i was just giving Lindsay ellis so much advertising oh because we, she's um, definitely going to get a lot of benefit from this podcast <laughs> that no one listens yeah to. yeah so much traffic from us um but no you she's... should tweet at her and say <laughs> we, we kept talking about you and we're sorry no Please. i don't want to be that guy be that guy um anyway so so, but yeah, she also makes the, the to, to, I don't, I don't defend his filmmaking because the point, what she points out is that you can't retain things that happens in his films because he doesn't give any th- breathing room for you to digest it. But the idea of breathing room, is, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, we're way off topic right now. Um, I would say not to, you know, uh, put myself out there as a much less qualified um, an al- analysis, an analyst of film. Is I feel like there is breathing room in Michael Bay movies, and I say this having only watched the original three Transformers movies once many years ago. So, I, and also I've seen what The Rock a couple of times. But there are moments of downtime. The problem is it's full of garbage. <laughs> so it's like you, you know, you look at something like um, if you want a movie uh, that's very, very intense, that you know is incredibly tight and has no gaps you look at a movie that i love which is mad max fury I, Road. Yeah, I knew it was coming of course it is because it's one of the greatest films ever made it's technically perfect it's mm-hmm. unreal there is very little breathing room in that film at all like there I, is well, minimal well let me let me uh, refine what i mean by breathing room which yeah. is, means a beat has time to land oh which, okay. which mad max definitely does oh, it definitely yeah. gives each moment the appropriate amount of time like whereas drum solo whereas michael bay particularly in the transformers films races from thing to thing to thing and it'll give you so much that you, you don't even know what it is you've seen before you're on the next thing mm. and that's why you don't retain it or he'll drag out moments that you're just like i don't oh he <laughs> likes his um you look at what's it um is it um, Armageddon, the fucking stupid one with the space astronauts? Why don't we the just minus? train astronauts to drill? Shut up. Yeah, and he he he's got this whole thing of like he wants to have intense emotionality, but his ideas of what emotions should be and are are kind of toxic and backwards. So it comes <clears> across <throat> as ham-fisted and weird and alien. So I think he's an interesting creative voice. I don't think he's a very good one. But I, th- I don't think that it's, there's a, it's very, uh, it, well, less these days. I think, you know, since like, it, it was at its height when he was doing Ninja Turtles and people were just like, oh, Michael Burr. <laughs> I think it's like a lot of people who didn't know anything about film would take against Michael Bay for reasons that they didn't fully understand. No, yeah, yeah it's, fair. it's not fair to dismiss him without engaging with his work. Yeah, and I think he's definitely... You know, I, I get the same thing with Zack Snyder as well, actually, mm. who... Aha, I can loop it back, I can loop it back. Oh. Who has also faced the difficult task of adapting well, other what, mediums. Oh, yeah, so Watchmen. Yeah, which Watchmen... Watchmen is a complicated film, I think, because a long t- for a long time everyone thought that, like, you know, Watchmen was unfilmable, which I think is a very limited way of thinking about yeah. it, but hey-ho... Um, I mean, Watchmen does a lot of stuff the book with the construction of it, both in terms of the panelling, in terms of the way the art is put together, in terms of the visual aesthetic, and, you know, the fact that there's, like, a giant, dumb, psychic squid. Um, it's a comic book, so it kind of, like, works, and it, you give your, you can control the pace of it a lot more, but they use stuff with, like, the pages, so they have, like, you know, you're leading up to a thing, and they turn, oh, shocking moments! Yeah. You know, it's a lot more measured in its tone. Yeah. Whereas Snyder's film is not bad it, it could have been yeah it's, it, it's it could, given that it, given how yeah. bad snyder can be well, I think, I, I think then it, again snyder's not actually that bad i got into an argument with dave last night <laughs> you know because dave was all like he's terrible he's utterly terrible i'm like he's not terrible he's a really good visual director even even though it's fucking garbage and it's a terrible movie and everyone involved in it should feel bad and probably mm. does because we've seen ben affleck's face even batman versus superman has some bits that look quite well put together from a visual standpoint. Mm. You know, there's a there's a there's a, 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 quite an iconic shot where Doomsday's all my face lasers and Superman's like my eye lasers and there's like this whole thing with the beam power battle and it's like sort of 
really high contrast like oranges and reds and stuff and it looks fucking cool mm. and moments like visually moments like that like look good he's very good at putting together things of that type yeah but 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 yeah to, to sort of bring us back to less just talking about directors and more about adaptation yeah um i was trying to lead back to that yeah so, because yeah. because yeah, the interesting thing about Watchmen. um yeah, I mean, because because yes, we could talk about how like the, the like Zack Snyder's take on it, which is not necessarily to do with adapting it. Um, I think what's m- what's more interesting is like the yeah the fact that Watchmen works very well in its medium, the comic, mm. um, and so that's why people think it's sort of unfilmable because it's a, that that is a very difficult story to translate into film. A because. It's long and a lot happens. Yeah, and like, there's tons of backstory. Yeah, and the, the fact that every chapter, you know, at the end has um, a sort of in-universe piece of writing, so that if you if you cho- choose to, you can really engage with the under the, the hood. Yeah, the massive air quotes law of the world. Um, why is why does that get air quotes? Because, it well, is law. It is law, but I also I, I just feel weird like saying law in a non-fantasy story. Oh, <laughs> I, law, back, lots of yeah, law. The, big, the, big the, law. the world building. Yeah, sure. Um, which uh, and the moment you put that into film, like automatically you, you have a time limit, um, and it's like oh we've got a lot to get through, so you have to make it more efficient, uh, which sometimes benefits a story. Mm. Uh, one example. Um, the Harry Potter films are, are interesting because there's you know there's things that work better in the films and also things that don't. Well, they um, they cut peeves out of the movies entirely, and <laughs> nothing of value was lost. Uh, I'm not going to engage with that, um, <laughs> but I mean, like what like again, the what the films miss because of this sort of pacing issue where you have to oh we have we've got a lot to do in a short amount of time we can't really take our time with anything is that um, you don't get that feeling of day-to-day life at Hogwarts you don't get a sort of like of course the Quidditch World Cup is is cut because it, it achieves nothing the, mm-hmm. the the plot doesn't happen until afterwards it, like loosely sets up but Victor Crumb and more it's Quidditch more, that's yeah, about it yeah also it's, isn't there the, 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 the gambling subplot with um Ludo Bagman yeah yeah that thing that is, I mean, a, yeah and it, I mean but it, it completely makes sense that that should be cut yes um, it's not a thing that, it's it makes, a location it it's makes, not an event yeah it makes yeah. the it makes the beginning um of the film sort of little awkward because it builds up to this thing that doesn't happen um but in the book you can take a bit more time because uh, even though the Quidditch World Cup doesn't really contribute much to the story it's interesting and it's fun so you you go along with it, mm. um, but so yeah, so that's a weird, weird thing where it, it's necessary to change that for to when adapting it to a film, mm. uh, but that there's no real good way of getting around that problem. Films have a much larger emphasis, I think, on being efficient. Yeah, which another like to to counterpoint that is uh, I, there's another Harry Potter example which does make it more efficient, which is in Harry Potter and, uh, and the Philosopher's Stone. Um, in the book. Hagrid comes to the you know the hut on this island in the middle of the sea, uh, and you're a wizard, Harry, um, and they have this conversation. And but then in the book he goes on to tell Harry all about Voldemort. Yeah. Um, in the film he doesn't do that. No. They just talk. Oh, you're like they talk a little bit about his parents. His parents didn't die in a car crash, but we don't explain how his parents died. Uh, Voldemort only comes into it like after Diagon Alley, after Ollivander brings Voldemort up and My Harry God, your wand. It's the twin of the one that gave you that scar. Yeah, and I think in the film that works really well because that is the appropriate time to bring this up because we're still reeling from the shock of finding out oh there's a wizarding world that has time to settle then and it naturally leads us into who is Voldemort. Yeah, but you can do that in a film because space is a little different. Um, like you can cut from scene to scene. And it doesn't matter that like, you don't really question, oh, why did he not ask about this earlier? Um, whereas in a book, more th- like more time passes and you're more aware of the passage of time. So, you, so it feels a lot longer that uh, Harry has spent not asking these questions. Hmm. Um, like, like in a film, you can have a conversation start, cut to the characters in another scene, and they're continuing the same point in the conversation. Yeah. And you, it's not, you don't think... Have they just been quiet while they walked outside? Um, but it's and but you can't do that sort of thing in a book. Wonderful example of lampshading this um, in the cartoon show Sonic Boom. There's a great moment where um, Amy Amy is talking to Sticks, and she just says, "You know what? This isn't really my cup of tea. You know what is my cup of tea?" Hard cut to them in a house. <laughs> she goes, "A cup of tea," holding a cup of tea. Sticks, why did you just say a cup of tea? 
Well, I remember what I said earlier. I was finishing the thought. Yeah, but that was like an hour and a half ago. It's like, yes, but imagine you were only listening into that conversation. Now we're here. It would have been great. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, it's a really bit of good genre awareness. Being like, yeah. oh, yeah, time and space get really weird in film. And they can do in books as well. Yeah. It, it's I, I, The thing with musicals as well is that there's always the um, the same kind of thing of trying to figure out, like, what is important in a musical. Because um, obviously the songs, are yeah. but the songs are actually in some ways, usually in a lot of musicals, they're kind of the most inconsequential part. Mm. Because normally a song in a musical basically is characters trying to figure out their emotional biz, which they sort of use the song as a method to try and get through it. They're at the end like, I'll let the dog go or whatever. I want much more than this provincial life. Exactly. And all that, all for example, using, yeah, let's look at Beauty and the Beast as a case study, for example. The only song in there that I think that really moves the plot, there are two songs in there I think that really move the plot forward. Uh, one mob song, I guess. Yeah, mob song, definitely. And the there's something sweet. Oh, yeah, that's true. And almost cut. Maybe that's that's basically and it's a, a montage. montage. It's a montage. Yeah, exactly. And the, the, so that works. Really, montages work really well in film. So you put a montage to song. Great, that's exactly. how it works. But but you're you're right that like certain other songs uh, may just sort of get in the way. Of, yeah. of like, and so that's why class was cut from the film of Chicago. Oh, even though it's a great song, even though it's a great song, a great and song. even though they filmed it, and even though you, it's still on the soundtrack because everyone fucking loves that song. Yeah. But um, when trans- translating it to film, they decided to make it Roxy's story because films work better when you when it's from a person's point of view, mm. and Roxy's not there, She's and not. it's not relevant to her story. And she doesn't so, really care about the motivations of. The uh, mama or the what's her name, Catherine Zeta Jones, uh, Velma Kelly, Velma Kelly, that's someone. Um, so with, with, to come back to Sweeney Todd, it's like uh, uh, there's the visual component where I feel like that they didn't go for it hard enough. Mm. Um, but also a lot of the this is going to be me sort of slightly crabbing about um the musical style, mm. the musicality of um, Sweeney Todd. A lot of it is the very kind of staccato, really quick talking, da song. I make all these pies. They're really bad. Yeah. And it, it doesn't like that. It doesn't help that um, there's that thing when you tra- translate a musical to film. You want oh, we need big names, but yeah. big names are not necessarily Broadway singers. Exactly. We uh, can't all be a Melda Stanton. Yeah. Uh, I don't. I don't want to disparage Helena Bonham Carter's singing too. Or under the bus. But it's tr- but her voice and her singing style does not lend itself to that kind of song. That's and sort she's of... doing the very Cockney accent thing yeah. as well, which is, it's always hard to sing in an accent that is not your own. Yeah. And especially because these songs are quick and y- you need to sing clearly to understand the, the wordplay that's going on. Yeah. And it, it doesn't, like, it doesn't always help that Helena Bonham Carter is the one that's doing it. Yeah. I feel like something like Phantom kind of lends itself better to that because mm. the music, because um, Sweeney Todd kind of uses this very tippity-tappity kind of musical style, you have to really sort of be engaged both visually to keep you sort of engaged, which you're not because the film's kind of visually a bit dull and you need to also really be paying attention to what they say yeah. because they'll have whole character introduction bits to just like, you know, introduce yeah. through the song. And a lot of people just kind of tune out in songs say, because you're, yeah. sort of, you're not, you're not always listening to both the meaning of the lyrics, the mood of the music and how, what it actually like is communicating to yeah. you. It's a lot to digest. Like look at, especially a song like Worst Pies in London, yeah. where not only is she singing very quickly and uh, it, there's music and, all, and everything we've just said, but also she interrupts herself continually. She's, she's talking about this, sit down, oh, this, and that, like she's talking about several different things at once because, she, and, and that's the point. She's meant like, um, uh, Sweeney Todd is meant to be a little overwhelmed by all of this. Mm. But if the audience is too overwhelmed, they're not digesting it. And then they're, mm. they're not, and there's actual plot relevant details there, like um, Mrs. Mooney and a pie shop where she's making Love pies us. out of cats. Oh, Mooney! Oh, yeah, the other. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. I remember. Th- remember, I remember these films more than I want. To. <laughs> like Die Another Day. I like t- just forgot the invisible car. I Jim. forgot the invisible car. But remembered <laughs> everything else. So, the, whereas you look at something like, say, uh, Phantom, for example, the the songs in there are generally grounded in a lot more sort of like it's less let's make the plot go and it's more let's use this music as a emotional surrogate to sort of communicate a through line for this character's arc you look at something like what's it um music of the night for example which is a song i quite like um that's basically him being all like oh christine i want to get on you (laughs) you you should embrace darkness because i am in the dark 
you know, and that's all that he's really saying. But it's like, you know, it's a three and a half minute song of going, I want to fuck this girl's voice. You know, and that's that's his whole biz. And you're just like, okay, I've got a full three and a half minutes or whatever to digest the idea that the Phantom is way into Christine's voice. You know, and he wants her to get in touch with the darkness. You know, because you have the whole thing of verses, chorus, verses, chorus, you know, big hammering it there. It's a, it's the similar thing actually with um, opera. You come up against this as mm-hmm. well, which uh, is more a question of um, localization. So I love The Marriage of Figaro. It's probably my favourite opera. It's great. The reason I love it so much is because when we were young, the BBC did an English language version. And I watched that a lot. We had it on VHS. And me and my elder sister, and even my little sister as well, when she came along, like we watched that a lot. So I know most of that opera off the top of my head in English. However, when I later on in life got round to watching the Italian version with subtitles, I was like, oh man, linguistically, the songs are a lot less complicated there's a lot more repeated phrases there's a lot more we are using this medium to communicate a broad emotional tone or a very simple concept it's um you look at um oh my italian's so bad was it like mi resta servita i think which is a song between marceline and susanna which is basically it's a wonderful song it's two women just throwing shade at each other (laughs) through the medium of opera it's fantastic and the idea is that um because uh, Marceline is spreading the rumour that Susanna is fucking the Count, um, she's all like, well, you must go through first as the consort of the Count. She's like, I'm not fucking the Count. I'm getting married, like, next week. And she's all like, no, no, after you, you're an old woman. Old (laughs) women must go first. And it's just this little, like, they just keep doing these little repeated phrases of just like, oh, so old, so old. She's like, aha, you little whore. (laughs) And it's, it's much more stripped down. But the thing is with English language traditions within music, it's very rare that we'd have a song that really just repeats, like, you know, four to five phrases for an entire song. You know, like, I, I'm casting my mind about. I think I, there's, um, what's it? Um, oh, the song by Broken Social Scene that I really can't remember. Ah, uh, used to be one of the rights and wrongs. I liked you for that. It's a really good song, but it's like, it's literally about four lines long and it just builds on those and reiterates on those. And it's just like sort of communicating this idea of teen existential angst. Um, so to tie that back into like with film, you have so many more options to communicate mood than you do on the stage. Mm. Because again, you can direct exactly what the audience is seeing. Yeah. You can focus in on like the tiny micro movements of like a character's fingers if you want, or you can isolate them off in the frame, like really far away to give a sense of distance or pathos or longing or whatever. And it's that film is a different language to theater. Yeah. I think, you know, and this comes into the broader thing that we, that I often complain to you about, which is lots of people don't know how to watch things. Specifically <laughs> adaptations of things they like. Because they're like, it has to be this way. Yeah. But it's, it shouldn't be the same. As, we, as we've discussed before. It's yeah, like, it, can't, it can't be the same. Because there's things you can't do. In, like, it is like, trans, like translating it to another language. Yeah. Um, Scott Pilgrim is an interesting example. I don't like the Scott Pilgrim that's, movies. Just going to say that up front. Yeah, that's fine. A lot, of, uh, lot of big fan of Edgar Wright. Well, kind of a reasonable fan of Edgar Wright. But I don't think those films work for me on a variety of No, movies. I mean, uh, so they only made one film. I know oh my God! Yeah, <laughs> six books, one film. Yep. Yeah, um, I think what's what's interesting about that film and that, um, like, I mean, there's a reason. Like, I think main reason it didn't do very well financially is that it's like you, it's more expensive to do that sort of thing. But I mean, because it's a cult idea. But in in comics, like you just draw it. But then yeah. if you have to, like, you can't make that film small budget. Yeah. Um, and but like you do like it does it does lose a lot in translation i do think you may disagree um that edgar wright got the sort of style and tone right yes um but what this to what, a given value i'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry i'll let you so, point. but what the film loses because and again it's this problem of time um is that well the books spend a lot more time just examining young people in Toronto uh, and what their lives are like. Yeah. And, and while, yes, there's this sort of heightened reality of, oh, we have to... There's this sort of video game cult, like, referencing and... Warp uh, space. Yeah, and all, there's, this, there's, there's this heightened reality of, of strangeness going on. It's more spaced out in the comics. But, um, yeah, so a lot of it is just, like, you know, the, the petty domestic squabbles of, of these kids. Mm. Um, but by, by making it more efficient... 
and getting through the relevant plot points quicker, um, you lose a lot of that. Yes. And so therefore the, the film isn't really about that. No, it, well, the, the fundamental thing that Scott Pilgrim, the books, is about, which I, I really, I really, really like those books. And I like Brian, the way that Brian O'Malley told those stories. And as a result, because he sort of incepted me with the ideas of enjoying this particular aspect of comic books, is why I think Octopus Pie, which everyone should read, it's all finished now. You can read it on the internet for free, or you should buy the books because they're really good. Um, <laughs> I just, I fucking love Octopus Pie. It's Look, really just good. giving everyone so much free. Oh yeah, fucking this, this is the plug cast. This <laughs> is. Um, but the thing I liked about Scott Pilgrim is that for me, the books don't actually really start to hit their stride until uh, post book three, which is when you've had, uh, I think it's what the first three or four X's because you've had what the. Uh, well, it's, it's like one per book, but then the twins. Together. The twins are there more, yeah. So, I, yeah, I think the, the parts that I really enjoy is not only the sort of slice of life, like you know, they, they have that whole sequence where you just see like, how does Kim live? Who does yeah. she live with? Yeah, what's her morning like? And, and it's, it's and it's, it's it's much more relatable. Yes, because like yeah, we've got the situation Kim and her horrible roommates and um, friends coming out as as gay and you re- reacting to that. Yeah, uh, and um, just like oh. New girlfriends, old girlfriends. Yeah, uh, the and... kind of tangled mesh of it. But the the thing that the the thing that the, the, why the movies didn't land so well for me is I, I want to stress they're not bad movies. Again, we can one we... movie. There was only one. Sorry, I know one... it. I know it felt like more. It felt long. Felt that's one thing. Is it felt slightly long. Um, but I think this is a good way to segue a little bit into Constantine syndrome. Oh, so yes. um, my friends and I in uni um came up with a term to describe an adaptation of something that is a good film but is hurt by the fact that it is an adaptation. This was inspired by the movie Constantine, based on the uh, Hellblazer comics. Now, Hellblazer is really good, and the Constantine movie is also pretty good, but the thing is, apart from the main character being called John Constantine, and the movie being called Constantine, and certain, there's a few plot points that are clearly pulled from a lot of different portions of Hellblazer, it's nothing like it in terms of tone or characterization. Or, like, the are things it's trying to do. It feels very at odds with the sort of more sort of kind of... Gr- he has a giant crucifix-shaped gun. <laughs> John Constantine, I don't think I've ever actually seen him carry a gun. And I've got, like, 12 trades of Hellblazer under my mm. bed. Like, he doesn't use yeah. weapons. He uses... So his... the, the, the film is hurt by the comparison. Yeah. If you look at it in comparison... You know, there's a, there's a whole book. I think, like, book eight or something... Where John Constantine becomes, he breaks up with his girlfriend because she almost gets killed by some terrorists who were looking for him. She then kicks him out of the house. He then goes on a massive alcohol and drug induced bender and becomes homeless and winds up like living in a broken down building with a rent boy because they were huddling together for warmth. It's like it's really grim, yeah, and really that, fucking sad. That couldn't happen in the film because you'd be spending too long away from the supernatural element that everyone came for. Yeah, a lot of John Constantine is like the supernatural stuff is all there, and he kind of deals with it, but it, it it's not what he's really about. He's just a really fucked up guy mm. who's both trying to find some semblance of happiness in a really shitty world, and he occasionally has to like deal with demons and stuff because he's a magician, and he's like, "Fuck, this is part of my responsibility." So, Scott Pilgrim, I feel, falls into Constantine Syndrome because I like the Scott Pilgrim film, singular, um, <laughs> but I, it doesn't try and, it doesn't, it doesn't even try and do the same things that the book does. Mm. The, which is, which is maybe, which is a good thing in an adaptation. Yes, yes, but the problem is I'm still comparing it and I like the thing yeah, it still, that it, it does. It still suffers from the comparison. Exactly. Um, like, the, one of the problems that I have with Edgar Wright's movie is that the way that film is both shot and written like, it's much more in favour of Knives and Scott as a couple. Yeah. They have that whole climactic thing where they fight Gideon together as a callback of their teamwork in the arcade game that they mm. played in the first act. And you're like, well, this is like, look at yeah. them, they're becoming a thing. And it's like, there's this moment where they totally should have just kissed. And there's like, also, Ramona is there. Yeah. And I'm like, and Ramona's character doesn't have nearly as much time to breathe as she no. does in the books. And as, yeah, she's not... As- 
there's like because in the books there's, there's this period where they're living together and oh, that's so relatable really uncomfortable uh, as well yeah, it's, it's like, like oh they're trying to make it like work. there's that great moment where like Ramona oh I'm going to work for today um, you're you can stay here um, but just um, empty the dishwasher and charge my phone and charge my yeah and then she leaves and Scott Pilgrim plays video games all day and then she comes home and asks did you do that thing yes I'm just doing it right now and she's uh, like that was like four hours ago yeah she's all like and like that's and but there's no time for that in the film exactly um and so you're right like the so just by virtue of of there not being as much development there um the ending that the film draws which to a degree is the ending of the book although they don't really ex- explain yeah that visual that, reference does yeah, not make the, any sense the, like the subspace door like that means nothing in the film yeah. um and so yeah so that ending even just even though it is the same ending as the source material um, it's not the end of the story they were telling. No, and in the in the book it works so much better because minor spoilers, I guess, for the end. Of, uh, who cares? <laughs> um, at the end of the books of Scott Pilgrim versus the World, is you have both Scott and Ramona have kind of mostly not got over in their emotional mm. crap, but they've both acknowledged that they yeah. have a ton of emotional crap. And they've recognised that they've both been shitty people. They have. Whereas at the end of the film, Scott Scott recognises like he has this fight with Nega Scott, and and he recognises, oh, I'm not so bad after all, which is. Which is, you know, that's fine as an ending for an arc, but it's not the same. No. And they, you have this thing where they sort of tie off all of their connections to everything in Toronto. Mm. And then they go to the subspace door and they leap through literally into the unknown. The whole point is that they're deciding that Ramona can't stay with Scott in Toronto because she's intruding on his world. And he doesn't want to force her to stay because that will force them to leave. So the only option they both have is they have to go somewhere else entirely together and make a new life together and not mm. be held back by the past which the whole fucking story is about yeah. hey seven people from my past keep trying to drag me back there because of fucking reasons yeah and it's all about getting away from that and actually taking that step and moving forward but because we don't establish this theme really in the film and and it's not even that edgar wright doesn't necessarily recognize that that's the theme yeah um it's just that the way the the comics express that theme um, you can't do in the same way in the film. Mm. So you either have to find a more filmic way of doing that, or you have to find <laughs> out what this film is actually about. Mm. Um, it's, it's hard to say. Yeah. It feel, it, it's hurt by the fact that it is an adaptation. In the, it's trying to hold close to this plot, but really it would have been more interesting to kind of go in its own direction. I mean, this, this actually comes back to a thought that I've been having recently. Um, is that the, one of the things that the Fox Marvel movies have done um, with Deadpool to a lesser extent but more concretely with Logan has been sort of saying so we have the rights to these characters that people know and like and we have good directors and we have good um, actors to play them the thing is we keep on getting caught up on this whole idea of having a big cinematic universe because Marvel Studios that's, are doing that that's the thing now and it made them a ton of money so we'd, we'd really like to do that Logan as a film, specifically, does not intersect with really much of any of the canon of not only the other Wolverine movies, or with any of the other X-Men movies. It's basically just set up and played out as entirely its own thing. Hmm. They are cleverly, what they did there is they very, very cleverly used the fact that you know who Wolverine is. You know who Professor Xavier is. And then they subvert that by transposing those characters into a new, mostly alien future world... Hmm. And just saying, hey, this is a story that we want to tell that is about something completely different. But it's using these characters more as, like, archetypes rather than, like, actual, this is the canon of this guy. And I think that it's more interesting, uh, as superhero ubiquity continues and grows and flourishes, you know, Infinity War's coming out soon. 56 million views in less than 24 hours (laughs) for the trailer. Holy shit. Look at all these characters that are in it that you know. Yeah, oh, it's the Guardians of the Galaxy. What a shame. Um, (laughs) Fuck you. Uh, I I mean, we we still need to do the podcast of just you and Rob in a room together about... (laughs) Um, But I think that's a better way to look at adaptation is that it should be less... this is where you're going to run into the whole thing of what's a good creative decision versus what will actually sell and what audiences expect. Mm. Because Logan did well. However, we had to have what? Um, X-Men 1, 2, and 3 plus Days of Future Past plus Wolverine Origins plus The Wolverine 
So six films, effectively, of build-up. Mm. And then they completely, essentially, cut that off because they're like, okay, everyone knows that Hugh Jackman is Wolverine. Yeah. Everyone knows that Patrick Stewart is Professor Xavier. We don't need to link this. We don't need to reintroduce this character. We can just say, yeah. like, here, this is a completely new take on this character, on these characters in a world you've never seen before. You don't know any of the other characters in this film. It's fine. And it works great because it's just banking on the fact that you know who these people are. I think that's the right direction that you should take for adaptation. However, because nerds, especially nerds, um, <laughs> are fucking annoying and stupid and don't know how to consume media, a lot of people come back with this sort of... I'm going to use comics as a surrogate, and I'm sorry, my fellow geeky nerdy brethren, but a lot of you really fucking piss me off. <laughs> when you're all like, like, hey, kids, don't like a bunch of the comics. And, I, like, and it, I'm it guilty of that. It can't be. And I'm guilty of that. Yeah. I've done that. Like, one of the reasons I dislike Guardians of the Galaxy 1 is that the villain is Ronan the Accuser, who is an interesting and complicated character in the comics, who is reduced to, I want to destroy planets, because yeah, Thanos told me, and a, now I'm dead. There's a balance to be struck, though, because while, yes, no adaptation should treat the the source material as gospel, oh. um, because it, it needs to necessarily be its own thing. It needs to take this idea and own it, yeah. rather than just being, oh, is it okay if I just borrow this? Um, it has to do that. At the same time, it has to be aware that it is going to be compared to the original. Mm. Um, and thus, com well, com com thus Constantine syndrome. Like well, thus reasonably or even unreasonably. Yeah. This is the thing. I mean, it's entirely... I think, like I say, I think Constantine is a pretty decent movie. Yeah. It's fun. It, you know, Tilda Swinton is Gabriel. It's fucking A-plus casting. You know, wonderful. Uh, yeah. Keanu Reeves, whom I really like, does a good job at being... Jun Kutchin, but he's American and not from Liverpool, and he's not blonde. And it's, I, it's not a bad character, but it, it, it's not as, as interesting a one no. as John Constantine. Exactly, and it, it's it's a hard balance to strike. I'm trying to think of like yeah. what. What's well, I'm, I'm sort of like this is, this is uh, uh, an example that springs to mind is a film I've not seen on principle, oh. uh, which is Oz the Great and the Powerful. Oh boy! Uh, but I've heard that they're sort of their sort of um, justification or motivation for uh, the Wicked Witch is that she was jilted and that's why she turns green. Pretty much. And I was like... Green with envy. Green with envy. Um, and that because her soul became twisted, her exterior also became evil. Sure, but... She I wanted mean, James Franco's I mean, that's, bone. That is problematic in and of itself. Yes. But I just thought, if you are making that film, you know... It's going to be compared to Wicked. Yeah. And Wicked is about this character and her motivation. So you, you need to at least acknowledge that well, even though the story isn't about her, we have to come up with something that is is good. Like, no, it doesn't have to fit in the same universe as Wicked. But, like, like because people love this thing, they're not, you, you know that they're not going to respond well if, it, if you reduce it here. Well, this comes, this comes to the um, notion of, like... Um, taking characters in who originally were quite flat mm. and trying to provide depth. Because yeah. The Wicked Witch of the West in the original Wizard of Oz film or... I book, just want those slippers from my dead sister. Yes, and I'm evil because fuck it. Um, I'm green and live in a castle and have an army of flying monkeys and, you know, I'm evil. It's my thing. Mm. What more do you need? And that's pretty thin. Then you get stuff like Wicked. We're like, well, people aren't just evil. Yeah. And we like characters even good or bad ones you know i'm sure I, I can read your mind that like you know breaking bad the whole point of that is that walter white is a bad fucking guy yeah but he you understand kind of why he does the things that he does which is yeah. what makes it interesting um you know i have the same thing with berserk um you know because guts on paper pretty terrible human but i get it i understand why he is a murderous remorseless killing machine because he is the victim of intense trauma and seeing that trauma happen is evocative and then seeing how he deals with it is also like you know oh man is he gonna like do all of the bad decisions and effectively you know in pursuit of this one thing it, so i think if they're trying to deepen they took the decision also the great and powerful exterior from wicked they were like well why do people go evil and they were like well if you don't get james franco's penis in your in in you at some point you're gonna turn into a monster that, just, that was their decision. I just uh, I'm trying to find a way of vocalizing how hard I'm rolling my eyes. It's it's quite impressive. Just out of the door. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
so it's a, it's a tricky game. You know, it's you. So you not only have to like. So we, I, I feel like if we uh, was going to collate the points that we've kind of come to is that one, you have to be aware of the difficulty of going from one medium to another because mm. each thing is better at a different thing. You know, uh, films very good at visual communication. Books less good. Yes, because you can have fifty but, pages but, of description <laughs> and that it can be done in two shots. Yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's like in, in Atonement, uh, there's a whole chapter about like uh, the mother and her migraines. In the film, it is one shot. I'm like, yes, you nailed it. Yeah. Um, but then at the same time, books uh, get inside a person's head. Films always exterior. Yeah, or like unless or if they you do, do unless you have to do a monologue, but then that changes the tone. Well, and, and you have like the thing of voiceover. Um, Kyle Calgren over at Browse Held High literally yesterday put out a video about voiceover and like. This is kind of a weird thing in a visual medium that it's sort of like, you know, we don't have a way, we don't have a language yet to sort of communicate the inner workings of a person's head, like you say, mm. we, we, we can only look. Yeah. So or, you have... or you have to do like abstract stuff like in Sherlock, where it's like, oh, now I'm in the lecture theatre of my mind. Yeah. Which I think, which is interesting. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's for, it changes it up. For all of Sherlock's flaws, that sort of visual metaphor for Sherlock's brain is often done really well. Mm. And it's, it's enjoyable. So you've got medium to medium challenges um but then also you've got the adaptive challenges of do you try and faithfully recreate the thing a mm. watchman which is pretty faithful and the changes that watchman made i think were a good choice yeah because it's like oh let's instead of having a giant ridiculous squid monster let's use the yeah. literal god monster that everybody is afraid that, of yeah, in the world that anyway. we already have it's more efficient yeah and it's sort of that's a change that makes sense but for the most part it is a very faithful you know, kind of uh, adaptation of it. Or do you go in more the sort of the Logan route, you know, which is more sort of like using the characters but transposing them to a sort of version of a story that was incredibly different but on a broad thematic sense kind of makes, you know, comes together to mean something. It, it, it's interesting to see where it will go, to be honest, because we're, we're getting to the point now where adaptations in cinema are big business. Mm. don't think that's a controversial... You've built an audience who will see it regardless of quality. Indeed. But also, the we're getting to the point now, there's always the reciprocal loop, especially it's becoming most apparent in comics because the, you know, as much as I hate to make this podcast about us talking about um, superhero movies again, you said... Well, um, it's, well, it's hard to escape from it because it's, they it's dominate everywhere. the industry. It's so dominant. It's crazy. There's the reciprocal loop that the comics are kind of deciding what the movies are, but now the movies are becoming so popular the aspects of the comics are now changing to become more like the movies. So you're kind of thinking, well, where is the actual genesis of some of these ideas? Because they were originally had in the comics, but then they were changed and transposed, and they're like, oh, that's actually kind of a good thing. Let's put that into the comic. And then mm. maybe the movies, when they get around to the next, the new Captain America, will be like, oh, and that, that's a really good idea from this comic that was yeah. based from this thing from the film that came from the... Yeah. All, all art is a conversation. Indeed. But it, it's... I think it will be interesting to see that if we get to the point... Ah, actually, another good um, touchstone point. Now that we're doing the plug cast. Um, <laughs> Movies with Mikey did a video, of, uh, I think, again, just yesterday, called The Batman Question. Well, maybe that was this morning. Was that this morning? No, it was yesterday. Sunday today. Right. Um, the Batman Question, which was... Um, Mikey put it on his Twitter saying, like, okay, anybody you want, no limitations. Can I have anyone play Batman? Who is it? And it generated a really interesting conversation that got way out of hand and got into some very racially charged areas. Um, but one of the things he saw put forward that he really liked was Janelle Monae as Batman. Oh, but, no! But, I think you're going to love this even more. Um, she the she then joined the conversation said, oh, yes, and I said, this. I want to be the Joker. Oh, it should be really good! Which would be really cool! Oh, I want to watch Batman with Janelle Monae as all the parts. <laughs> But the Commissioner Gordon Janelle Monet, <laughs> Bad Girl Janelle Monet, Bane Janelle Monet, okay, and Two right. Face Janelle Monet. Uh, so, but the the point that he made is that, like, at the bottom line, Batman is a fictional character who will change and adapt to be relevant to the times. You know, in the same way that you know you have it with any cult, massive cultural pop pop culture figure. They have to change. They have to adapt. Mm. They have to grow. You look at like Superman. Yeah. Um, originally created by working class Jewish people as a champion of the working classes. His original villains were taking on rich fat cats. Yeah. And then he sort of somewhere along the way became kind of co-opted as a symbol of America and yeah. thereby became a symbol of authority and the government and became like, now I'm going to sort of 
work with the government and I'm kind of res- beholden to them because it's more responsible. And it's it's interesting how it's changed. Yeah. But if we could get to this idea of trying to ins- put forward the idea into regular society that it's more about what the character represents rather than the mechanics of how you tell that story. Yeah. If you follow me. Yeah. Like Doctor Who. Say something cogent <laughs> about Doctor Who. I'm sure there's something. Well, I mean, in Doctor there. Who is interesting because it revives itself regularly. Yeah. And um, within the canon of the yeah. show as well. And but in sort of each iteration of it is um, kind of like a separate show. Mm. Um, like Stephen Moffat even like when in his first season had to convince the BBC that no, this isn't season five; it's season one. So you actually need to give us more money. Um, <laughs> and and it's in, it's in, like even like the logic of the world changes because because the really all that's all that Doctor Who is is just at, at its core time traveler who is an alien but looks human. Uh, they like you. You can say, "Oh, sure, he's got two hearts," but that's changed. The, yeah, it's it's irrelevant. So yeah, yeah time, like um, has a time machine that looks like a blue box. It needn't look like a blue box, but that's what's familiar. Yeah. Um, picks up a human every week, different time and place. Fight a monster. Yeah. That's and that's all Solve you need. Problem. That's yeah. all you need. Yeah. And there's so many different iterations of that idea that yeah. you can do. And so, her like the Doctor being a woman. Is actually like small potatoes. It's small like potatoes. yeah, like you could go really wild with this, and it would still fit. Oh yeah, when you have the thing as well of like the, you could kind of look at the doc, uh, the doctors in a sense of like each doctor has a different relationship to the stuff that defines them. Mm. You know, you you go back to like what was it William Hartnell? Yeah, really old grandfatherly kind of like I'm an educator. You know, and it was more like about him specifically in a more sort of, you know, uh, patriarchal teaching role of, you know, sort of trying to learn these dumb humans about yeah. this thing. And often he was he was sort of an antagonist. He would often get in the way of what <coughs> needed to be done, which was the you know the the intent of Barbara and um the Ian. And then you have the second doctor who's basically a space homeless man. Yeah. I'm going to play a flute. Let's go hang out in the street. Fair. Mm, Jamie, I'm more free love and just like, hey, Let's chill out, guys. Yeah. It, 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 and you can see that that's reacting to a differing cultural tone. Yeah, so you can sort of examine, like, you can probably read a little bit about the time that it was made by their take on this idea. Yeah, and the um, aesthetic and the seriousness of and it. This, and how they well, this also goes on, like, why adaptations need to change. Like, oh, there's a whole conversation I'm going to have here about this argument that I had with someone who's saying that Captain America can't be gay because he's never been gay. Uh, and the story it was sort of homo- it's homophobic to change him. What are you talking about? Uh, it's like I remember you. Uh, <laughs> I recall this. But idea. yeah, but it's <laughs> but like no, these characters have to change yeah. to reflect the changing attitudes of the world or to become relevant. Again, Lindsay Ellis made this point about um, Hunchback of Notre Dame, how it used to be about the value of you know the, our history and our culture and preser- preserving that, mm. and now the work achieved. Uh, increasing awareness of that so that means the story isn't relevant anymore unless you change it yeah which is why now it's about the plight of the oppressed maybe one day equality will be achieved and we'll look at stories like Hunchback in Notre Dame and think like what the fuck is it talking about we'll just be like how quaint yeah Um, remember a time when you know people people were divided along racial lines can't they see that they're all the same that first race war huh oh um so I noticed we're drawing towards the yeah, end of our Yeah, I don't time. know what point we're making. Well, I think the original thing was like it's sort of trying to communicate the feelings that you have when you're faced with something that adapts it. I think if I was to give as if we give our dear listeners any kind of you know takeaway from this, um, and this is certainly a thing that I don't practice as well as I should, <laughs> is that um, I think when you look at anything that's an adaptation of a thing you like, try. And it can be hard, because I have just spent like 20 goddamn minutes going on about how I don't (laughs) think the Scott Pilgrim film works very well, (laughs) uh, because of how it's thrown into relief by the comic books. Always try and take it on what it's, on its own merits first. Yeah. Look at it as a film, or as a TV show, or as a book, or as a comic book. Or just its its own animal. Yeah. But like, yeah, so, but yes, I think you say, okay, this is what this is. 
And then you can compare it because you're like, well, because then you see like, oh, well, yes, it's not doing what it's trying to do as well as this does. Mm. Or, or it's doing a different thing and that's fine. Yeah. yeah. Is that thing for me? Is it something that I'm interested in? Yes, no. You're allowed to definitely have opinions about what something means to you. Yeah. Um, it, you know, One of the things that's frustrating about like Batman, fucking Batman. <laughs> is that you have the thing that Nick does like things dear listener sometimes I do some, I mean I did just get like way excited about like Mad Max <laughs> yeah, that's true. perfect film um, mostly perfect um, you have um, Batman who a lot of people sort of view him as like oh he's cool and grim and dark and also kind of a bit fascist and that's yeah. fine even though in previous versions of the comic it's like this was presented as a bad thing that Batman was becoming fascist and out yeah. of control it's like it's it's sort of people don't really think about it because they sort of have come to accept this like oh but it's this thing that I like therefore it must be okay yeah yeah there is a sort of thing about a disparity between like that you know the thing itself isn't always as uh, as important as how it is presented mm, and what it represents and how it's framed and why it's there there's so many inadaptations where it's like oh well this he this character is this way so he must be that way and so yes but there's a point and a reason for that decision and you, if you don't understand the reason you're not adapting it properly basically oh I can have a slam at something right at the end for a thing okay, I really you, got, you got 20 seconds this is why Hal Jordan is terrible <laughs> because Hal Jordan is the worst Green Lantern because he was made up in like the 50s and he's a boring fighter pilot idiot boring bland but because he's the first, custard. that's he's the, the one you have to do. Same with Barry Allen, same with all the whole nostalgia thing. Let go of nostalgia and let things grow. I think that's what I'm going to leave as my fucking final thought. That's time, motherfucker! Well done. Um, so, yeah, we've wasted some time. Well, yeah, then. we definitely did. Don't let go. things grow. Have a lovely garden in your heart and your mind. What a Waste of Time featured the voices of me, Jim Woodall, and Nick Hurd. Music by Anthony Bullinger.